0: we're continuing on our teaching on trusting God in turbulent times. And I've been talking about the fact that from a biblical perspective, there are three purposes that suffering and adversity can serve. It relates to this issue that people raise where they challenge the possibility of any redemptive dimension to pain and adversity. And though God is never responsible for the commitment of evil, Nevertheless, he can use it. He's sovereign enough to accomplish his purposes by means, even of the wicked intentions of humanity and of angelic uh, forces. And he can use this ultimately for a greater good. Remember, we call this a divine comedy, speaking about the fact that distorted relationships and misconstruals can ultimately converge into a greater good at the end of the comedy when all things get reconciled and sorted out so that there is a growth and a development of character. Think of any good film you've seen or any uh, great novel you've read. And what do you discover uh, in the process of seeing a film? Let's say, for example, the first one that just pops into my mind is Rain Man. And you think of Tom Cruise's character um, and uh, Uh, Charlie Babbitt uh, and his brother Raymond. And Charlie, all he wants is the money. All he wants really is to manipulate the process to get himself taken care of. He couldn't really care less about his brother in any meaningful way. But through a painful series of setbacks and problems and so forth, what do you discover by the end of the film? That his intentions have changed. And what now does he uh, value? He treasures his brother, he treasures relationships, and there's a depth in his character he could never have had without that uh, actual adversity and all those setbacks. The same thing happens in another film just comes to my mind, Gladiator. When you think about the fact that Maximus, at the earlier part of the film, all he's looking for is revenge. But as the film develops, there is a growing theme about seeing his loved ones again about the Elysian Fields and about his wife and his son who are waiting for him, and about the fact that uh, he has this growing aspiration for the thing that will endure and for those relationships. And so he himself then develops in character and pursues something, which, by the way, one of the interesting points of that film is here's a pagan who is willing to sacrifice more for his vision of the afterlife than most Christians are for theirs. But that's another story. The fact is, if you look at any number of uh, great films uh, that are things that are comedies, that is to say, if it ends well, but even in tragedies, there can be the, the development of a process whereby we discover. What we thought we wanted was really not what we needed. And pain and adversity can move us away from our wants to our true needs. And again, in the character arc of a a story, you discover that a hero often starts off with what he wants, but he later discovers what he wanted was really not what he needed, not the best thing for him. And so it's often adversity that does this. And if we can do this in film and in drama and in literature, cannot God do this in history? This is why the idea of a divine comedy that ends well is one where God will use pain redemptively even to accomplish his purposes and that nothing, no pain, no suffering, no sorrow for those who want to know him will actually be wasted or lost. And that's a very important perspective. It is heaven that really gives us the answer to the pains of earth. It is an eschatological solution, which means basically that we are considering what's going to come. What's the future? And when we recognize then that a person may go through great pain and adversity for decades in this world, I believe, though, when they see Christ, I think that what they will see is that five minutes in his presence would be more than worth the 80 years of affliction on earth. And it's my belief as well that if he said after five minutes, now, are you willing to spend another 80 years of adversity to see me another five minutes? I don't think we'd hesitate. I really don't. But the beauty is that the 80 years is nothing and the five minutes is eternity. And that's what the perspective that Paul maintained was all about. I consider Romans 8:18 8, sufferings of this present time not even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us and that's a, that's the perspective of a person of a person who's more than an overcomer because he understood for me to live is Christ and to die is gain he understood that to die is gain so he recognized that nothing can defeat God's eternal purposes in him it is true that uh, his opponents ended his life, his physical life, but they could not end his spiritual life. They could not eliminate that which would endure forever. And we who are in this world are being crafted and shaped by God for eternity. And in this world, we encounter many misconstruals, adversities, oppositions, pains, setbacks, broken dreams. And as we go through those kinds of contexts, it is well for us to engage in a biblical perspective so that we can think well and clearly about what's happened to us and what might be happening to us and where God's promises are so that we develop a history of gratitude whereby we we remember and recall on a regular basis God's many benefits and gifts and graces to us in the past so we have a perspective on our present If God could carry me through in those things in the past, can he carry me through in the present uh, distress? And furthermore, we also have, in addition to what he's done in the past, we have his promises for the future. And we have the resurrected Christ who assures us that he is, in fact, going to come again. And he's going to receive us to himself, that where he is there, we may be also. So we have that assurance then of a future that will end well And we recognize then that God is going to accomplish all things well so that no one, when we stand before him, will object. No one will say, but I thought you promised. They'll all recognize when they see him that he was indeed more than just. He was gracious and he was merciful. And it's an important point of view that we need to maintain. Last time we talked about the fact that um, some forms of evil are necessary, it seems to permit human freedom, and we talked about the fact that much of our pain, sorrow, and adversity is a direct or perhaps an indirect consequence of either our decisions or those of others, and that the vast bulk of the pain we encounter can be this way um, we recognize that um Some forms of of pain and adversity can actually prevent worse ones. And we talked about how, for example, that uh, certain pains can be warnings about worse pains physically, and certain moral pains as consequences of our actions can be warnings about worse moral consequences if we do not uh, take heed and gain lessons. So it can permit human freedom, because remember, the arguments that people say, Why doesn't God eliminate all evil? If he were to eliminate all all evil, who of us would be around at 1201 if he did it at midnight tonight? So the thing you want to be be careful about, and people are always selective, they really want him to eliminate stuff they're not doing. (laughs) But the fact is that uh, you have to realize that uh, God is going to bring evil to an end, but he is permitting certain things so that we would have the ability to make choices And our choices do shape our our eternity. Uh, It prevents greater evils, and it can also promote a greater good. And this is important for us to recognize, both an immediate good as well as a long-term or eternal good. That God can accomplish things that um, uh, bring us immediate moral development and perfecting. But God can also accomplish things in our lives that would drive us to our real condition before Christ and we'll recognize that we if all things were going our way might not ever really grasp our condition of true desperation as people before God it is only as a result of need that we come to him i fear and he understands it he stoops to conquer if that is what it takes so be it if it's restlessness if it's need whatever no one's going to come to God out of ultimately pure motives just wanting him for himself they've come to him Ultimately, because they recognize they are people who are desperate. And that is why Romans chapter three, or one through three, develops the bad news before he talks about the good news. He talks about, he spends the bulk of three chapters talking about condemnation before he begins to talk about God's solution, which is the provision of justification. For why would one want to come to Christ? Why would one want to give up their life for him if they found everything was going their way? The scriptures have a very realistic anthropology, a realistic view of the human heart, which recognizes that we in our natural state are at enmity with God and would not pursue him unless, in fact, we found ourselves in a position where we had nowhere else to look. Many times this may be the case. Now, there are some people where their life doesn't have to fall apart for this to occur. But in many cases, and I suspect many in this room, are here as a result of something that actually broke in their world. And they became aware of the fact that they were not in control. And while it's against our natural grain to submit to the purposes of God, to abandon the project of autonomy, the arrogance of independence. Nevertheless, we begin to discover that we are not the gods of the universe, that we are not the um, captains of our souls, that we cannot control our faith, and that we really are, must come to the understanding again of the basic message of the Bible, which, as you've heard me tell, tell you many times, is simply this. I'm God and you're not. And the realization that when we're not God and we need one, the one who can sustain us and can, and can control and to move things in his direction, the more we move in a direction where we're ready to receive his grace. So it can promote a greater good, not only immediately, but also ultimately, because no matter what happens, if it drew us to Jesus, it will have been worth it in the end. And I don't think anybody will look back and think that uh, it's otherwise. I look at my life and all these decades have gone by. It's as if it was yesterday. It just seems like it's gone by so, so quickly. Uh, I still find it amazing that I can see uh, where I am and how it's easy for me to remember what happened when I was 5, 15, 25, 35, and so forth with about the equal amount of vividness and how it just seems all those have gone by. Now, if we think about that, and if I also think about some things, I remember things, if I just bring something to mind, let's say maybe when I was 20, Take a year, what was I wrestling with? What was I terrified about? What was I anxious about then? Somehow I managed to get through that. And somehow by the grace of God, he guided me in a journey and in a process. And if I can get a perspective on that and I realize how brief and ephemeral this world is and how little our pain is in comparison to the glory of eternity, I can begin to embrace a, a real perspective that he's preparing us for a greater good. This is definitely not the best of, uh, of all possible worlds. Leibniz tried to make that argument. I just don't see how a person could sustain that argument. I can see a lot of better ways to get to, to do that. However, what if it's the best possible way to get to the best of all possible worlds? And that's what I believe is happening. And it, that will include even the rebellion of, of humanity. Uh, the blast of the fall, the um, horror of sin and of death, insofar as the Creator undertakes the redemption of the world and actually bears the weight, the freight of our combined sin, underwriting the cost of our own rebellion and ultimately paying for that so that we might have a way with God. So that the greatest manifestation of the grace and, and goodness and love of God would be seen at the cross, where the one who receives his who his uh, um, wrath is the one who deserves his mercy and his grace and his love. We who did receive his grace and love, we are deserving of his wrath. And so we have this incredible switch where he, in that event, underwrites the whole cost of the, of, of human nature and and of all that we are called to. Uh, be and to do, he under, underwrites that course that the gospel is God's offer of his power to make us and transform us into the people he always intended us to be. So as I tie that together then, evil, I believe, does have a purpose, though may I stress, we don't know most of what's going on. Most of this is a mystery. And so uh, while I'm trying to give you those perspectives about permit, prevent, uh, permitting human uh, freedom and about preventing greater evils, and about promoting a greater good, I'm not claiming that that is a full understanding of why a thing would happen to a given person at a given time. I can never make such a claim. I can never tell a person who's suffering, oh, this is happening so that this will happen. You do not know that. So it is wise for us to have a humility. We do know that there are answers, there are perspectives, but we will not fully understand them in this life. We only see right now through a glass darkly. So we must come to understand that in this world there is a mystery. But again, the old phrase, we do not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future comes to mind because there is one who is in authority and in control. Nothing will happen to him by surprise. And in spite of people's wickedness and malevolence, and the spiritual warfare we're in, he will do all things well and accomplish his purposes for those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. If I I consider what happened in 2004 for just a moment, as a particular case in point, it's intriguing to me how people would respond to the tsunami in ways that uh, were kind of surprising to me. People who I thought should have known better suddenly it's as if this is the first thing this hap- time this happened in human history. Uh, it, it, I find it astounding that that can be the case. When we think about that, there are several factors that we could just take into account right away in light of what we've been describing. One of these things is the nature of a physical world. The very nature of a physical world is that certain events are the necessary part of the way the earth functions as a geological uh, system. You see, without storms without floods, without volcanoes and earthquakes, and hence tsunamis, there really could be uh, no life on this earth. What you need is to, the earth would have become a desert eons ago. It would have been uninhabitable. There are reasons for that. But you need this churning activity in this world. The way this world is currently in existence, the way it has been established, The laws of physics and of nature and so forth are such that there are certain things that will happen. Another one of those laws is that things will wear out. That's just the nature of it. The second law of thermodynamics is ubiquitous. I have a strong suspicion that will not be a part of the new creation. I think the second law of thermodynamics and I think gravity will no longer be in the new order of physics and the new uh, creation. But that's another matter. but I, I do believe that the world that we exist in now uh, makes it possible for such things to occur. And that God can be involved in, a, in three different ways in an event. He can be ultimately the one who's directly responsible for an event, the one who brings it about directly by his hand. Secondly, there can be a more indirect causality whereby he uses other agencies, but he's still behind it all. Or a third causality, whereas he can allow things to run their their own course. Romans 1, three times has the chilling phrase, he gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over. To their own devices and desires, which is a chilling word. So he allowed allowed them to, to have the fruit of their own folly. Instead of intervening, because they reached the point where they rebelled against him and they would no longer bow the knee before him. They did not give thanks or acknowledge him. And so, what we see is that God can be involved in differing degrees and in differing ways. And we have to understand that even natural evils, though these occur, in this case, you might say that they're natural processes that we construe to be evil because of consequences that they have in human lives, but they're not evil in themselves. An earthquake is not in inherent, inherently an evil thing. A tsunami is not, but at the same time, it's part of a physical world. But uh, the, the issue is going to be where it touches upon and impinges upon other people. Even there, however, there are choices that we make that can actually amplify the problem of a mudslide or of a, a volcano or of an earthquake or of a tsunami, whereby people know certain places where these occur, and you can predict where they're going to occur again. So when the San Andreas uh, Fault does finally go, it's, it's such that California goes, in and the coastline now is Nevada uh, of the United States. No one would have the right to raise the clenched fist against God and say, what were you doing? Because you, have, you ought to know it's actually overdue. Uh, it, uh, geologically, it's overdue for that to occur. There are certain decisions. Let me go to the tsunami. This is an interesting point that uh, most people do not know. It turns out that uh, the Asian summit, just the year before the tsunami, uh, rejected the idea of an early uh, warning system because they felt that uh, which exists in the pacific basin because they felt that it was too expensive and such events are infrequent to justify it near the indian ocean you you see the interesting the animals had more sense than we did uh, i don't know if they have a capacity that we must have lost there but the point is that there are factors and choices that people make that can make them vulnerable um the new orleans situation tragic as it was, shouldn't have come as a surprise insofar as you're living in a city, most of which is below sea level, and you're living on a coastal area. Uh, When Hurricane Camille came in years before, and many before that, we recognize there are certain patterns that are going on, and you build a house and live there at your own risk. You therefore do not have the right to raise the clenched fist against God and say, "Why did you allow this to occur?" So even when it comes to natural evils, much of it is related to our own decision. So that moral evils and natural evils can work uh, together. Now, why didn't God stop it? And that's a question we can't fully ask. Um, Why doesn't God stop bullets from actually uh, turning into marsh? Why doesn't he turn them into marshmallows? Why doesn't he stop the sound waves when a person wants to swear at another person? You see, there are times, however, when God will intervene in powerful and remarkable ways, but we cannot demand that he do this at all times. There are mysteries involved, and God has purposes. And there are the uh, dangers in this world. But even there, again, I want to say that while God, you don't want to say, is to blame for an evil thing, at the same time, he can turn evil into good, and I believe that this is an, uh, an important perspective that we must embrace uh, in this uh, in this present darkness. We realize that we are dealing in a world there is a great deal of uncertainty, but there is a, there is a God who does love us, who is in control, and who is accomplishing things even in this disease, death environment with a satanic warfare with human flesh, the the uh, the rebellion in the human heart, and so forth. In spite of all that, he's accomplishing a purpose, and we will look back and recognize that he does all things well. I'm going to move on from here. Um, there are a lot of issues. We'll come back to some of these issues, but I want to talk about other aspects of this matter of why God allows these things to occur. I want to give a lot of biblical illustrations. I want to gain insights and perspectives by looking at the various characters in Scripture. I want to look at Job's life and Joseph, and I want to look at Daniel, and I want to look at Paul and the life of Christ and to see what perspectives and illustrations do we see mediated through these stories so that we can get an orientation. But if I were to summarize everything we've been talking about so far, I would say that we live without all the answers. We live in mystery. We can gain perspective to some degree, but it will not answer our every question. But we do not understand why it is that some things happen to some people and some to others. But the question of why do bad things happen to good people can just as well be turned around. Why do good people, things happen to bad people?